because clearly a louder me is better. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Quick announcement uh, that got uh, left off there. So to this afternoon at 3 o'clock, we have Grief Share. Uh, they're starting a new section of that. So if you've lost a, a loved one, uh, not to be insensitive, it is specifically for the loss of a human loved one. Uh, you're welcome to uh, join them for that. And uh, I've looked at the curriculum a bit, and it looks pretty solid. So if you're interested in, in some fellowship and uh, some relief uh, from grief, 3 o'clock here at the church, they meet in the back. I'm pretty sure it's entry through the back door. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> uh, this is, I think, I think I could say, it's probably my favorite portion of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 2 uh, through 5. It probably should be the Gospels, but it's not. Um, and what I really appreciate in this portion that we're about to get into is to observe Paul's heart and Paul's heart for uh, other human beings, Paul's heart as a leader, uh, Paul's heart in trying to continue and establish communication with people. In an age where, for the most part, if we don't like something or we've had uh, some sort of conflict with someone, if there's not a big stake in our lives already or they don't live with us or something like that, we're very prone to just cut them off. We're very prone to just block. I'm not going to deal with this. I don't want any part of this. It's too much trouble for my life. All these things. And what you see, we're going to begin to see here with Paul, is he's writing to Corinth. And we kind of mentioned it last week, and it'll become a little bit more evident because we'll cover it today. That, and it is conjecture, so feel free, feel free to throw it away. But evidently, Paul had both a visit and a letter that occurred in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We know 1st Corinthians is not his first letter because in chapter 6 of 1st Corinthians, he, said, he says, I'm writing you again. So we know there was already one lost letter. And it seems because he mentions in chapter 2, verse 1, a, a painful visit and then also a, a letter that he had written to them. So 2nd Corinthians appears to essentially be either a third or most likely fourth letter that he's written to them. And he's had multiple visits. And remember, he's writing to, at this time, and we talked about this last week, he's writing to kind of a mixed bag of people. There's some people there in Corinth, uh, for example, the household of Chloe and others, that have made it very clear that they're saying Paul's doctrine is good, it's solid, this is from the Lord, this guy's helping us. And then you have others who are saying, no, this guy's no good, his doctrine is go no good, they insult him, they say, look how weak he is. He writes these, these bold letters, but when he shows up, he's kind of a wimp. And they, they attack him in all these different ways. So in the, what we're observing here in, in kind of a contextual way or maybe overt or kind of overall is Paul's care for the church at Corinth because I, I would have been tempted a long time ago to say, okay, that's how it's going to be. I'm out. Fine then. Go get circumcised. Make sure you do nothing on Saturday nights and I'm out. You know, I don't want to deal with it. But that's not what he does. He continues to invest. He continues to write. He continues to visit. He endures pain from them. Remember, and if it's not very long from where we're at where he's going to tell them, the more I love you, the less you love me. So he's investing in people that don't like him, don't speak well of him, don't high-five him, don't respect him, they mock him, and yet because of his heart for them, 
He doesn't pull back from that. And I think also the will of God and his calling in life, he doesn't pull back from them. He, he presses in. And so that's what we get to read about. There's some pretty awesome glimpses of what Christ has done in Paul and his heart uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not trying to elevate Paul as something more than a human being that said yes to God, because that's what he is and that's what we can be, right, uh, and, and, and the callings that we have. So we're going to get started here, and we're going to begin in, in uh, verse 12. It's an odd um, piece of Scripture because Paul is dis- he's beginning to defend himself, this particular section. He's defending himself because he didn't show up when he said he would. He had told them that he was going to come, and then he doesn't show up, and they're upset with that. And so he's now writing back to them and explaining why he didn't come when he said he would. So in chapter 1 and verse 12, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relationships with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. So the first defense, the first thing he brings up, he says, we have something to boast about. Now, in, in the same letter, in chapter 10, verse 17, he's going to say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul is not saying here, let me tell you how great I am, Corinth. Let me tell you how wonderful I am as a person. I'm going to boast about myself now. No, what he's explaining to them, he says, he's basically saying, we have something that's good about us. And he says, I want to tell you something that's good about us, which might make us feel weird because typically if someone says, hey, I want you to know something about us, about, about me, that I, I actually did something good. We can get a little weary of that. But what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to encourage them and, and point out to them that they did something. And what they did was this. He says, our conscience testifies. So he says, for all that is, we might say, for all that is in me, for everything that I know, my conscience, my inner person testifies to something. This is what I believe in my heart of hearts, Paul is saying. He says that we, that, you know, Timothy, Apollos, the different people that have gone through those, Silas, that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationship with you with integrity and godly sincerity. So what he's trying to communicate to them, and he's going to give some proofs of this, what he's trying to communicate to them, he says, look, when we were with you, we did it with integrity. So what is integrity? It's the idea that you do what you say, you are what you appear to be, that there was no cheating, there was no shadiness, there was nothing, no ulterior motive or something like that. So he says, when we were with you, we had integrity. In other places, he talks about people, and it was very widely occurring at this time, uh, when this letter is written, where uh, there were, just like there is now, there were charlatans. There were people that understood that, that they could make money or be taken care of by preaching the way. Remember, it's called the way at this point. And they would talk about Jesus and these things. So they would go to gatherings and they would basically rip off the gatherings and you know, get a place to stay, get food and stuff like that by, by, by making the way. They weren't operating in integrity. There's also, if you recall from last week, we touched on it, there's a whole group of people in Corinth that reject Paul's whole take, uh, really the biblical take, on 
where the law is in our relationship with Jesus. And they're wanting to bring people into the dietary laws, and they're wanting to bring people into circumcision and the Sabbath and these type of things. And he's, he's, later on, he'll point out, these people do not have integrity. They're not, they're not doing it with a pure heart. So he's trying to uh, uh, communicate to them. We might say, like, I want you to know my heart in this, right? What we're saying is, I want you to know what I really think. And so he says, it was with integrity. We didn't have an ulterior motive. And not only that, he says it was with godly sincerity. So sincerity, again, it's, just, it's a similar idea, but it's specifically based on how we feel about something or our intentions. And so he says that I had the best of intentions, that Apollos and Titus, or, uh, excuse me, Timothy, Silas, we all had the best intentions to you. And, and this is, I think, important uh, that we want to be able to communicate to one another and that that's how we operate in church and in any relationship. Because his point is, in our relationships with you, that's noteworthy. Paul viewed his ministry in Corinth not just as speaking, a speaking engagement. Sometimes he was going to talk about the Bible. He looked at it as, I'm developing relationships with you. We're going to spend eternity together. And so he says, when I was operating on an individual level, in, re- in relational level, and in a corporate level with your church, I was doing it with integrity. I did it because I wanted to. My, my sincerity was there. And this is one of, especially in our, we live in a world that's uh, very flippant, uh, very doubtful, and sincerity seems to be rare, doesn't it, in our world? It seems like there's a lot of people trying to get a lot of stuff, but we're always a little bit like, uh, is this real, you know, is this, what, what's going on here? Especially when people call for our, like, our social security number or something. <laughs> like, uh. I feel like maybe you don't actually have my best in mind. So we, we, Paul here, writing back to them. Remember, he was there for 18 months. He started the church. He's written the multiple letters, multiple visits, and he's having to write back and say, no, those were all things that were sincere, and, and we'll touch more on that. From there, he says this, We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we did not write uh, you anything you cannot read or understand, And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us. And we'll stop there for a second. So this evidence that he gives is not only just based on past and the history, but he says, we did this, we we had our relationships, we had our visits, we did this, relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. And so, and then he gives an example. We didn't write anything to you that you could not understand. So Paul's telling them, when we were with you, we weren't using worldly methods to try to win you to something, right? Because you can go to whole schools, you can, you can go to whole uh, uh, acting ways, and you can figure out, you can get books, uh, in fact, if you wanted to, about pastorings, about hand gestures to use, and you know, all these different things. It's kind of interesting to kind of make showmanship of things. And so what Paul's saying, we didn't use any worldly ideology, anything that would have been self-centered, anything that would have been us-motivated. He says, that's not how we related to you. We didn't try to use sly uh, and, and incredible speech. It wasn't because we were great orators or do, we did everything right. He said, that's not what we did. We related to you instead based on God's grace. We related to you as God gave us favor and us understanding. We tried to give that to you, and we trusted God's grace and his spirit to pass that on to you. That's what he's saying. I want to make an application here, not just for church, but for all relationships. This is really important. 
for, for, for any interaction that we have that's going to be on a continuing basis, a relationship, that we operate in integrity, that we don't exaggerate, we don't tell lies, we don't try to be something that we're not, we don't try to portray something to somebody that we're not, that when we, when we interact with people, that we do it with integrity, that we do it with sincerity, that we can look at a person, and if we are experiencing alternative motives, if we're experiencing like, I just want to get away from this person, or we're experiencing, I just want this person to really like me, right? Kind of two ends of the spectrum that we as human beings can, can go through in that. That we instead move to a place where we say, no, I'm not going to operate from, from a personal feeling, an ideology of, of what I want. I'm going to operate with sincerity. I'm going to look at this person and realize, take a moment to realize, this person was made in the image of God. This person, if they're a believer, is my brother and sister whom I will spend eternity with forever. This is a person that if I, if I uh, renounce or destroy or manipulate, I'll be accountable for that. That we interact in every relationship, not trying to use uh, manipulation or guilt or shame or passive aggressiveness, right? All these different things that we can use in a relationship to try to get what we want. That's, it's never healthy to do that. And Paul's going to actually bring this, eventually at the end of chapter 1, he's going to talk about how he views being an apostle as an elder. He's going to say, we're here to just be helpers of people's joy. Because the incredible thing about relationships is that we, off sometimes, we can manipulate people. We can have ulterior motives. We can want something else that's just their best, uh, the best for them. And so Paul here is making the point, he's saying, that's not how we operated, it's not what we want, and for us, that's not how we want to operate, right? When we come and we gather together as a church, we gather together as God's people, or we're at home in your marriage or with your children or whatever it is, we don't use worldly philosophies in our relationships. Not worldly philosophies like how to communicate well, but worldly philosophies that come back to how can I get what I want from this relationship? How can I get my partner to give me what I think I deserve or what I need? And that's just not what we're called to do. We're called to be those that are, are in relationships. We, we communicate with integrity. We communicate with, with uh, sincerity. And we're, we, we then move and operate in a way where we can lift one another up in any context. Does that make sense? And Paul's saying, that's what I'm about. This is kind of a shtick for me. And it's a shtick for me because I don't think we do that. Humans, we as humans. I think, just from observation of my own life and observations from different counseling that I've done over the years, for the most part, we don't operate that way. We say that we want to. We talk about operating that way. But then as soon as we're kind of left to our own devices and we're in the moment of something, we instead just stamp our feet and, and try to, you know, whether bully people or manipulate or shame someone or whatever it is to get some desired end. Sometimes it's so sick and so satanic that our end and our desire is just to rile someone up. We have cute sayings for that. We call it pushing someone's buttons. It's wickedness. We're not here to push people's buttons. We're here to show people Christ. We're here to make sure that they're loved. We're here to make sure our spouses are loved, our children are loved, strangers that come in are loved, the ones that smell good and the ones that don't smell good, right? We're here to make sure that every single person that we come in contact with, that they know the love of Christ. Jesus told us that that's how the kingdom works, right? 
He said, herein, John 13, 35, herein, in this thing, you sh- that everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. He said, that's how people will know that you're legit learning of me. It's not because you go to church. It's not because you don't cuss. It's not because, you know, all the myriad of things that are probably good. It's if we love them with integrity and with sincerity. He says, that's how my kingdom is going to be built. Now, Paul's, you know, we'll talk a little more in a minute. He's not saying that we don't share truth with people, right? He's just got done the letter we have in 1 Corinthians is like a truth bomb, right? There's a lot of hard things that he says in there. So he's not talking about an an absence of truth in communication. What he's talking about is communication in a way where people understand that we're there to help them and to be a blessing to them and not to demand from them and require of them. That's not our jobs. Sometimes in parenting, I guess, with little kids, but that's about it. So he goes on there, uh, and he's going to expand on this. He gives a reason. He says, so that, at the end of verse 14, he says, I want you to understand, excuse me, he says, "I, I know that you understand us in part, and he says, I hope that you will come to understand us fully, that you can boast of us just as we boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. So what Paul says, he says, my hope, my goal is that for our, from our interactions, that you will come to a point where you'll be able to boast in us. In other words, you'll be able to say, no, these guys, they're followers of Jesus and they care about us. And he says, just like we will boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's... Uh, philosophy or his outlook on this situation is when he stands before Christ, he plans on boasting about the Corinthians. They give him a painful visit. They required four letters and more. They rejected him. And he says, I want, I hope, you want right now, he says, you, you kind of understand who we are. He's not saying you kind of understand our doctrine. That's not the issue here. What he's saying is you kind of understand who we are as human beings. And he says, I hope that that will grow to a point where one day you'll have confidence in us. That's what boasting is, right? Something we have confidence in. And you'll be able to say, no, these guys were actually sent by Jesus. These guys are filled with the Holy Spirit. These guys love us. These guys care about us. I think it's awesome, and I think we can learn from this as a kind of a side note. Paul doesn't write, you better love us. You better acknowledge us. You know, you know I started your church. What is your problem? Get it together, right? He gives them room to grow. This is super important in relationships. You would think after he spent a year and a half there, visited there multiple times, has sent at least two, if not three letters by this time, you would think that they would know him and they'd be growing with him and they would be receiving him. But they are not. And he doesn't force them. He doesn't try to force them. In fact, he reiterates that here in a moment. He doesn't try to force them to be his friends force them to do what he wants, force them to do what he thinks they should. He says, you know what? I'm hoping that someday you'll know me good enough that you'll be able to boast in me and Timothy, Apollo, Silas, and you'll say, these guys are of the Lord. He goes, because you know what? That's what I'm going to do when I stand before God. That's impressive to me. It's impressive that, that Paul's heart is, even though you've caused me all this pain, I know that Christ is in you, and I know that he's working. And you know what? When I stand before Jesus, my testimony to him is going to be that I know he was in you. And I hope that you'll get to know me enough that you'll be able to say the same thing. You see that heart there? That's so much different than some sort of bizarre, domineering, weird pastor thing, isn't it? So much different than this is how it's going to be. You better fall in line. And if you don't, to hell with you. 
which way too often becomes a leadership style and a relationship style. And we don't, that's, it's not of God. It's not of God. Paul here is just saying, hey, I'm for you, and I hope that you can know the same thing about me. And how is that going to happen? From him loving them, right? From him investing in them, him taking abuse from them. By hanging in there and continuing, they will be, the chances are they'll be one, right? At the very least, they're not going to be able to make a legitimate accusation. It won't stop them from making accusations, but it will be illegitimate. He goes on from there, and then he builds. He says, verse 15, he says, Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you. Confident of what? That he wanted them to get to know him. So we're building here, right? We're just going through the context. He says, Because I was confident of what I just said, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. So he says, he tells them, this was my original plan. So somehow they knew his plan, right? Because they knew he didn't come when he, when he, was, when he said he would. So he, he says here, I was very confident and so I wanted to bless you twice. I wanted to show up twice. He says, I wanted to show up on my way to Macedonia and I wanted to show up when I returned back from Macedonia, Okay. Then he says in verse 17, was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? So he asks them a couple rhetorical questions about what they think of him. This is a very good way to communicate in times of conflict, a very good way. The best way, I would say, you can argue, I think it's the best way to ask questions about what people think. I'm not trying to have like a Dr. Phil moment here, but I think one of the most difficult things that we have to do as human beings is communicate. It is so hard. You wouldn't think it's hard, but we're so busted and weird, and we interpret things so bizarrely sometimes, or we say things so weirdly, that we can't understand while somebody else doesn't understand us. So Paul starts, and he, just, he's, he, says, he says, look, I made these plans to visit you on my way and to visit you on my way home. He goes, do you think... When I didn't show up, do you think that I was fickle? Meaning, I vacillated. I, didn't, I just was like, yeah, maybe I'll come, maybe I won't come. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But I told you that I would. So yes, is that what you think would happen? Do you think I just don't care, is what he's asking them. The next question he asked them, he says, or do I make plans in a worldly manner, so as in the same breath to say both yes, yes, or no, no? This is a little bit more malicious. Not that he's being malicious, but he's asking, do you think I maliciously told you I'm going to show up? Yes, yes, but actually, haha, no, no, I'm not going to show up. Like he was putting them on. Like he was just like, get off my back, I'm coming, haha, never mind, and he ghosted them. That's what he's asking them. And so these are rhetorical questions. Why is this a great way to communicate? Because we don't want to just, if we just tell people stuff when they're already weary or not sure about us, does that help? It doesn't help, does it? There's a reason that the YouTube algorithm works the way it does. right? There's a reason the Facebook algorithm works the way it does. Because we love to be told what we love to be told. And to hear something outside of what we love to be told, we don't really like. So when you ask a person questions, genuine questions, what you're trying to help people do is to understand, twofold, that you understand where, they understand where you're coming from and you understand where they're coming from. So Paul just asks, like, is this really what you thought happened? He's not being sarcastic. He's not being rude. That would not be of the Holy Spirit. He's literally just, he's literally just saying, do you think that, is that what you think of me? That I just fickly did this? Or do you think I maliciously did this? 
And you would, you hopefully, as a, as a human being, you would stop for a moment. You would consider those questions and say, well, he did spend 18 months with us and start the church. Uh, he did turn down any money from the church. Remember, we know that from 1 Corinthians. He said, I didn't take any money from you guys because I knew that you would make it an issue of it. So he didn't take any money. So you would be forced to sit down if we took a moment and thought, took a, a breath from the emotion, a breath from the, the big feels, and said, well, who is Paul? Okay, well, he started the church. He didn't take any of our money. He stayed in when we insulted him. He came for a visit multiple times. He always preached that Christ loved us. He always seemed to be looking out for us. It helps to take a moment and to consider. So when you're in conflict with someone, a church, a fellow church member, in conflict with an ideology, in conflict with an individual, whether it's church or work or whatever, it's so imperative to say, well, hey, you know, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure, ask me a question. Do you think that I did that maliciously? So I say, well, I don't know. I mean, you just showed up and... Uh, and you're like, well, uh, I apologize for that. I was, the reason I just kind of rushed by you and didn't shake your hand at church was I just had a bunch of... I had to get to the kids' ministry because I was late. And it has nothing personal to do with you. I just was trying to be faithful to the commitment that I made. And then us as an individual can realize that we're not really important. And we can go, oh, that's cool that you wanted to be faithful to something that you said you would do. Or if they just said, you know what, I just was not, I wasn't in the mood, and I apologize. I just didn't want to be around people. It's why I came to church. <laughs> then you can be like, oh, I'm going to do something crazy in this world, something completely wild, and I'm going to not take it personally, and I'm going to move on, Right? It's amazing when there's humble communication, when there's questions asked, when motives are revealed, when trust is extended, when knowledge is grows, that's where you get relationship. Relationship begets love, a, a tender care for each other, and that begets a testimony to Christ. So it's, it's really important. If we're going to be Jesus followers, Jesus lovers, and human helpers, that we learn how to communicate in ways that we're able to receive and we're able to give information in ways that are going to be God-honoring and non-manipulative, non-aggressive or passive-aggressive or those ways that we check ourselves. And that's one of the things in this society today, it's just, it runs rampant. I do not check myself. I just say what I feel when I feel it and that somehow makes me a genuine and a, 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 a good addition to society. And it's just not true. It's not real. It will leave us alone and alienated if we do that. So they, they, he says, was I fickle? Did I make my plans in a worldly manner? Or did I say both yes, yes, and no, no? Verse 18, he says, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is yes, excuse me, it was not yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him has always been yes. So this is a bit of a digression, right? This doesn't really have to do with his visit anymore, but Paul's taking a moment and he's saying, look, just like we didn't hang you out to dry on the visit, you need to understand that our message is also not invalid. 
Our message was not spoken out of both sides of our mouths. It wasn't done without integrity. It wasn't given to you without sincerity. So he's saying, just like our visit wasn't yes, yes, no, no, so also when we shared Christ with you, it wasn't, it wasn't that we thought some of it was untrue, that it was shaky or we're giving you bad doctrine. He's saying, no, that in Christ it's all yes, that they always told the truth about Christ. Verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, uh, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, we're not, for time's sake, you could probably spend a lot of time on this, but essentially what Paul is saying is this. Our message, everything that we said to you, all the, because remember, they don't have the New Testament, right? So all the teachings coming from the Old Testament by divine revelation, because there, there is no gospels written at this time. There's no collection of gospels. There's no nothing. They have the, you know, the Old Testament scrolls and a couple of letters that are being circulated, and this is when they're just starting to copy the letters. So when he's coming and he's speaking to them, it's not like Paul's saying, let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the last letter I wrote to you. He's, he's just he's speaking, right? And he's giving testimony from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament for the most part. So he's making the commentary. He's saying, look, everything that we came and told you was with integrity and sincerity, and all the promises, the Old Testament, not the New Testament, all the promises are yes in Christ. And when we give an amen, it's a glory to God. So he's reassuring them that the message that they got is all yes and fulfilled in Christ, and that everything that they've said about who Jesus is and what he did at Calvary is valid and not to be questioned. Okay? That's what he's saying to them. So it's, it is a, it's a digression from his original point because he's going to get back to it, but it's a good digression. <laughs> it's a good encouragement. So he says, verse 21, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So he follows this up with, a, with an attribute and with a glory, with a praise, with a, a doctrinal point about God the Father. And he says, it's God who makes, us, makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. So he's saying and acknowledging it is the Father who orchestrated and executed the whole plan. And because of the, the, execu- the orchestration, the, the conceiving the plan, however that worked in eternity, conceiving the plan and executing the plan, because God the Father did that, he makes us to stand firm in Christ. This is a huge doctrinal point, right? Because what are the false teachers saying? They're saying Jesus was a good start, but now you need to be faithful to the Torah. Now you need to make sure that you're getting circumcised. If you're a dude, you need to make sure that you're observing the the dietary laws and you need to make sure that you're observing the Sabbath. Those are the big three, basically, that the Judaizers really emphasized. But Paul comes back in this reminder of their integrity, their sincerity, the amen of what Jesus did in their message. He's saying, no, when Christ went to Calvary, right, the core message of of Christianity, the, the core message of our peace, of our... Uh, uh, boldness to pray, all the, you know, everything, our boldness to meet, our boldness to worship. The key piece of all of that is that when Jesus Christ was slain at Calvary, when he went to the cross that his, and shed his blood, that God judged him for our sin. So our sin was taken upon Christ. God judges him for that sin. 
And now you and I are able to receive a free gift of salvation because Christ showed his dominance when he resurrected from the dead, that sin could not hold him, death couldn't hold him, that he is the righteous one. And so Paul is, is saying, according to their doctrine, the gospel and other things, obviously, that he's shared that, that God causes us to stand firm in Christ. We don't cause us to stand firm in Christ. We don't, you know, we don't do enough things to do it. We're not faithful enough. We're not nice enough. There's no place where we all of a sudden say, I sustain my salvation. That's what a, that's what a works-based salvation is, that, uh, that I sustain it with my faithfulness. And by doing enough, and how do you quantify faithfulness? Do you do every single thing that God ever told you? Would any of us raise our hand right now and say, I've done everything that God has ever told me to do? Because that's the standard of the law. So we can't make a medium standard where it's like, well, I tried. And that's how I maintain my salvation, because I'm, I'm usually faithful. I'm like a solid 45 percenter, <laughs> right? Because that's what worst-based salvation is. We, we try to make some sort of, because the law says you have to be perfect. The gospel says Jesus was perfect and paid for our sin. And then we come up with this other thing, like, well, I'm, I'm trying and that makes me right with God. No, it doesn't. Jesus makes us right with God. And ultimately, God makes us right with God because he sent Jesus to make us right with God. We're always and only right with God because of him. We've never done anything to earn it or deserve it or bring it to ourselves. All we did is said, yes, I will take that free gift. And the whole point of Romans 4 is that saying, yes, I'll take the free gift is not a work. It's that Abraham believed God and was accounted to him as righteousness. If, if anything else had been needed, then it would have been a wage. I love that because it makes it so stark. Would any of us say, God, you owe me? <laughs> I'm pretty faithful. I, I read the Bible. So, so God owes me salvation in heaven. Yeah. Seems a little dicey, doesn't it? Like I got to wash my mouth out with soap now or something. <clears throat> But he says it's, it's God that causes us and them to stand firm in Christ. Again, giving them an equation, showing them we're like you. We, we come from the same gospel. We have the same truth. Verse 21, now it is God, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, verse 22, set his seal upon, uh, of ownership on us. Again, that's the same idea from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians uh, 5, seal being like a signet ring. That he put his seal and wax upon us, uh, like you would do old school, or if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know, when you're sealing uh, the envelope with the secret ring in it, you know, that kind of a seal. So he has put his sign of ownership, his official seal on us, those who have believed in his name. Then he says this, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, the word, that phrase, as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come is actually one Greek word. It's arabona. So we, it's, this is the challenge of translating, right? The Greek have one word for this, but we need a whole sentence for it. And what the one word means, it's, it's a, a, literally it's another accounting term. It's another business term. And it means to give a deposit, acknowledging the requirement to continue to pay. Does that make sense? So, like, for example, if you have a car payment or you have a, a housing payment, a, a mortgage, when you went to the dealership or wherever, the, you know, to the, to the title company, you said, I'm going to put down this money, and I'm acknowledging that I will have to continue to give money, right? 
That's what, and it's an incredible thing because Paul is saying that when he calls it, when Paul calls it in Arabona, what he's saying is God gave his seal as a deposit to you and guaranteed that he would continue to work in your life, that he would continue to give you more and more and more of his life. It doesn't mean that we have to accept it and walk in it, but the guarantee is given. So it's, you can see why it's kind of interesting to kind of poke around at some of the Greek words, right? Because it sounds good in, our, in English, but when you realize, like, no, Paul's using a legal business word to say God has obligated himself to those who have called upon his name for forgiveness, for the gift of salvation, to not only attach himself by spirit to our souls, but then continue to minister and to give. How great is our God, huh? How good is Jesus? That he's never given up on us. He's never going to give up on us. So much so that Paul reiterates this idea in, in Romans chapter 8, where he says, those whom he foreknew, foreknowledge is this. It's the idea of knowing what will happen. That's what foreknowledge is, right? So none of us have true foreknowledge. We have basic foreknowledge. You know, We might say, eventually, James will probably stop talking, right? So that's general <laughs> foreknowledge, right? There's no guarantee of it in our world, but you know, it's, it's foreknowledge, right? So God, by true foreknowledge, the absolute reality that he knows what will happen in life, God foreknew who would choose him. He says, those whom he foreknew, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. See, God did not predestinate who would receive him. He foreknew who would receive him. And he said, I'm giving you a destiny. You will be like my son. So the question, not in deity, but in character. So the question becomes, how much of that will happen and will we allow to happen in this life? How much will we yield? How much of our house will we build on the rock? Whatever metaphor we'd like to look at. How much will happen in this life and how much will happen at the judgment seat of Christ? But every person who has ever called upon the name of the Lord will be conformed to the image of his son. Every single person. And Paul reiterates it here. He says, God, he put a seal on you. He, he's, you're his you're his child. Jesus told us, I don't call you servants. He says, I call you friends. You've been made a friend of God, sealed as a friend of God. You've been given and attached to his Holy Spirit, his essence, his pneuma, his breath, who he is. He's attached himself to your soul, and it's a guarantee he's going to continue to work in your heart. That's what Paul is saying here. This is when we, I think, for me, I, I can't make, I don't want to make any kind of assumptions for you guys. But for me, this is really comforting. Because I'm a wreck, and I need the Lord. And if there was a chance that he would give up on me, he would have given up on me. And so to know there's no chance that he'll give up on me, it's such a comfort. It's the, it's the only peace, I think, that there is in this life. And so just to, just to be able to walk away, each one of us knowing today that God has guaranteed he's working in your life. And, he's, and maybe that's scary, too. I don't know. <laughs> he's guaranteed it, and he's sealed you, and he's attached his Holy Spirit to you. So we'll move on there. So he says this, uh, verse 23, I call God as my witness. So he says, let, let God say if I'm lying. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life upon it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. So historically, 
This is probably not when he started the church. This is prob- probably what happened. And again, this is conjecture because you're trying to look at different things through history and what he said. Probably what happened is that Paul starts the church, writes a letter. We don't know what was in the context of the letter. So the household of Chloe and Timothy and Silas. Chloe writes a letter. Timothy and Silas show up. They confirm that a bunch of shenanigans is going down in Corinth. Paul writes 1 Corinthians back to them. Paul visits them on his way to Macedonia, the the painful visit. Paul decides not to visit them on the way back from Macedonia, but writes a letter, and after that letter comes 2 Corinthians. Does that make sense? So again, it's it's conjecture. You can throw it away, but we, we know that there were other visits, and we know that there were other letters. But what he says is, he says, I want to guarantee to you before the Lord, and I'd stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you, I did not return to Corinth. Again, you see his heart, right? He says in in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I did not want another painful visit. We don't know what happened in that visit. We don't know why it was painful. Maybe it had to do with doctrinal stuff. Maybe it had, who knows what it was. But he says, because of that visit, that painful visit, I did not want to go back to you. And he says, and I I waited to go back to you. He says, because... um, He says, because it was in order to spare you. See, Paul had apostolic authority, right? He was one of the big 12, as it were. He could have easily gone into that church and just started, you know, like a bull in a china shop, just taking names and just clearing things out. But he elects not to do it. Instead, what he says is, I wanted to spare us both that. I didn't want another painful visit like that. Instead, he says this, he says, I I wrote for you, this would have been that third letter that we don't have, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, this is chapter 2, verse 4, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So at the end of chapter 1, he says, we, we, uh, uh, to spare you, we didn't show up, and then he says of the, uh, again in chapter 4, he wrote the letter, because he loved them. So there's this, this correlation, instead of a visit, he gave a letter. But in verse 24, we see his motivation of chapter 1. Not that we lord over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith. This is really important for church leadership. It's important for every relationship. He says, I didn't come to you because I wanted to spare you another painful visit. Anyone to spare himself a painful visit. He says, instead, I wrote you a letter. But in his philosophy, he gives us his philosophy of leadership and of relationship, and it's perfect. He says, you know what? He goes, I'm not here to lord over your faith. Just say that to yourself for a second. I'm not here to lord over anyone's faith. No one's faith is mine to lord over. Everyone gets their own walk. And the funny thing is that because of my own personal church history, I got saved into a pretty legalistic church. I didn't know it at the time, but I did. I was there for about 11 years. And the kind of destruction that I didn't realize what was happening at the time because of how a very strict uh, um, meeting schedule, four meetings a week, you know, on top of working full time. Uh, church was basically, I mean, there were breaks and stuff, but it was basically we set up for church about 8.15 in the morning. Usually I got home about 5.30 at night. Uh, it just was a really intense type of thing. If you didn't show up for church, you got a phone call, all sorts of stuff like that. Here's the thing about 
using worldly methods to communicate and using worldly methods to try to build something in someone's life. You can get people to do, something, do things through blame and shame. It's actually really easy. It's pretty disgusting, but it's really easy. We do it to children. You ever pretended to be hurt because a child didn't give you a hug? We manipulate two-year-olds because we want to feel good about a hug. Isn't that weird? I know it's just we do it in fun, like, hee, hee, hee. But think about that for a second. Be honest with yourself. Don't be loud about it because that would be weird. But, you know, be honest with yourself. Have you feel, felt hurt because a two-year-old didn't hug you and then resulted to pretend to cry to get them to hug you? And to be honest about it, was it because you were actually hurt and you wanted to be comforted by them? That's some deep need. Right? I'm not mocking that. Because I think every human, you know, as much as we want to pretend we don't, we experience those kinds of weird needs in our lives where we need acceptance and we're willing to do things. So you can get people to do things. You can get people to do stuff at church. You can get them to give more money. You can get them to sign up for kids ministry. You can get them to, you know, whatever. You can do tons of things in church to make people feel blame and shame, and it's an incredibly powerful motivator. Or you can bully people into it, some people. But you know what happens when you use those things as motivators? One of two things, both in an instruction. Number one, somebody realizes, and it could be 20 years, it could be two weeks. Somebody realizes what's happening, and they realize that they don't want to do what we've been trying to get them to do, and it leads to rage. Typically, an alpha personality, it'll lead to rage. And one day, they'll wake up, and they'll be like, I hate you. I hate you for doing this to me. I never wanted to do this. I never wanted to be in your kids' ministry. I never wanted to give the money you, you said I should give. I never wanted to, whatever it might be. But they'll wake up and, and they'll say, and, and it'll come down to, I hate you. And they'll rage. And, and they might be right to do it, in a sense. And, and, and then there's a severance of relationship. Because they will look to us as the people that force them to do something they never wanted to do. And they'll wake up from it, and it'll be broken fellowship. Or typically in a beta personality, what they'll do is they'll retract. They'll realize that they don't want to do what you've been forcing or I've been forcing them to do, and then they won't, the, 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 they won't return our calls anymore. They stop coming to church. They don't return the calls anymore. They're not going to return the text. They're not going to talk to you because they don't want that kind of conflict in their life. And they're left feeling uh, anxious and angry. Or that same person breaks because they feel like everybody else can do this but me. I don't understand why I don't have the desire to do this like everybody in the church does. And they begin to kind of paint with a broad brush that everybody loves Jesus and everybody just serves their hearts out and everybody is perfect all the time except them. And then they retract and they leave the Lord because they feel like I can't go to Jesus anymore. Like he won't, he wouldn't, why would he have me? I'm so below everybody else. I'm so broken compared to everybody else. So that's why we never... Lord over people's faith. We try to be helpers of people's joy, right? We try to come alongside and say, hey, you know what? Uh, I was praying about this. I've kind of observed this. You know, maybe this isn't the healthiest thing. The Lord says we, we ought not to do these things. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that? And we can ask people questions. That's really important, right? We can, if 67% of men and 47%, now it's up, of women look at pornography on a regular basis, we can either have a freak out and say, just stop. Stop doing that. And while you're at it, stop smoking and stop doing drugs. Right? And stop cursing 
and just, just stop. Stop sinning. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Or we can ask questions. Why do you think you, you, you need pornography? What happens inside of you when you feel the need to, to look at these images and then masturbate? Why do you do that? Is it stress relief? Is there something happening? Were you molested? Right? We, we, are, we know from science that if you've been molested between the ages of five and eight, those are the hemispheres of your brain are forming, and you will actually form synapse and the connections in your brain to appreciate your molester. They already know that. It only takes like five or six times before a child can begin to like it and then grow up and endorse what happened to them. So you wonder why, why child molestation is so oftentimes generational, because your brain can actually appreciate it. Sexual violence, right? Lots of, there's tons of studies out there you can read about how much violence is in porn. Literally trains your brain to love violence. Sexual violence. It's what it does to men. It trains men to have a dopamine release when they observe violence against women. That's what porn does. It's pretty radical, huh? And so we can, we can look at it, we say it's disgusting, it's horrible, and we do. But we can talk to people. How can I help you with that? Why do you feel like you got to smoke weed every night? What's wrong with your life? What are you struggling with? What do you need rest from? What's the anxiety that you're trying to retreat from, right? We can just start screaming, stop it, or do this or that or the other thing. We can do all those things, but they're not helpful. We can shame someone. We can say, well, why don't you do this? You will sign you up with my email, and then every time you look at porn, it'll send me an email. Do you really want to be someone's conscience for that? Is that really victory over sin? Is victory over sin, I really want to do this, but I'm not going to because then I'll, somebody will know. Is that victory? No, victory is not wanting to do it, right? Victory is deciding there's something more valuable than that. So we want to help people with victory. Now, is accountability good sometimes? I guess. I don't know. I, that's, the jury's out for me. I'm just going to be honest about it. But what I do know is that if we're having victory over sin, and it's only because we'll have to tattle on ourselves, it'll end in rage or anxiety, just like the other things. And that's not good. So we, we want to help people. We want to be helpers of people's joy, right? There's plenty of truth involved in helping with people's joy, right? There's plenty of truth in saying, look, if you're doing these things, this is statistically where it will most likely end. And even more importantly, God says it's wrong and it'll hurt you. So how can I help you to not be a part of that? How can I be a blessing to you? How can I help your joy in that? Right? We don't just insert ourselves in people's lives and say, don't worry, Dad's home, everything's going to be fine. Now stop. <laughs> right? It doesn't work. How can I help you? Why do you think you do this? It's not psycho babble. We're not, we're not trying to just, you know, hey, lay, lay back on this couch and tell me. All. No, we're trying to get to the bottom of why the symptoms being manifesting. That's what we're trying to do. Anyway. I just really appreciate this attitude. And if we could be like this in all of our relationships, you know, I tell you, as Chloe could attest, it's hard to be a parent and not lord over your child's faith. That's something I'm learning, not to be a moron. You know, she is her own person, and she has to grow up. And sometimes I just think to myself, I can make her grow up right. Isn't that stupid? I mean, I think her walk with the Lord is good, but it's just... It's one of those things, I don't want to paint her in a bad light because she's here. But uh, <laughs> no, because she's awesome. I, I really, she encourages me uh, a lot, actually. But 
But I find the temptation with both my kids to be like, you're going to know Jesus and love him, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> and we just can't do it. We can't do it, you know? And we, we can't do it for our kids. We can't do it for our spouses. You know, there is a tremendous video series by Andy Stanley, and it's for, for, new, uh, for newlyweds, but it can be for oldlyweds also. Um, <laughs> But the, the first message, I think it's the first message in the series, is um, what should you expect from your spouse? And his answer is nothing. Nothing. That you have your walk with the Lord. And his whole point is this. And I'm, I'm, this is Ailey Stanley. I am, he, he came up with this. I'm not trying to rip off his stuff. But he, he brings up on the stage, and he has this, this crate. And, it's, uh, and it, he pulls all this stuff out. It's like a house and like a car and all these things out. And he says, a lot of times what we do when we get married is we have this big box of expectations. And we hand it to our spouse and we go, there you go. I need you to do this. All right? We, don't, we kind of bring it out from behind our back usually. <laughs> they don't necessarily know them. And then we say, this is what I expect from you. This is the car I expect from you. This is the house I expect from you. This is the quality time I expect from you. This is the sex life I expect from you. This is everything I expect you to do for me. And the whole point of it is that, no, that we go into marriage and any relationship, church relationship, I'm here to serve you. Because that's what our vows are, right? Our vows are not, I will accept everything from you in better and worse. I will take everything from you, you know, in richer for poor. Our vows are, no, I'm there regardless to serve you and to bless you. And when you approach marriage that way and when you approach relationships, platonic relationships in that way, I'm not here to take from you. I'm not here to get from you. I'm here to give to you. That's called Christian maturity. That's one of the really important things about growing up and, and being a Christian is that when we come to church, when we gather together, whether it's home group, small group, you know, going to a movie group, game group, whatever, that when we show up here, that we don't show up and say, this is about me. Do you, do you come to hopefully hear from, about the word of God and hear about the Lord and his goodness? Yeah, of course you do. Should the word be a blessing? Of course it should. But hopefully we don't come here because we like the music and we like the Bible teaching. Those are, that's great. But as we mature as human beings, hopefully we come saying, I'm expectant for what the Lord will give me today, but you know I'm going to church today? To serve others. That's why I'm going to church today. It's a pandemic across the world. And, and every church, people, different missionaries that I know, in the United States, across the world, it's, it's changing. The emphasis is changing. And we think it's called a church service because it's there to serve me. And it's not. It's a church service because we serve Jesus. Now, do we get out of it? Of course we do, because God gives more than he gets, right? I mean, he, he gives all day long. He's, all day long, he's the lender. But to come with the mentality to say, I'm not coming to church for me. I'm coming to church to lay down my life for Christ with a bunch of people that are broken like me. And who there can I help their joy. When we come in the door, may every one of us say to ourselves, whose joy can I help today? I'm here to lord over no one's faith. I'm not here to tell anyone what to do. I'm here to help someone's joy today. And that could be a hug. It could be a handshake. It could be a word that God gave you, you pass on to someone else. It could be all a myriad of things. It could be small talk. We don't, I know that everybody, it's kind of cool to hate on small talk today. And kind of our way, but you know what? Small talk is not all bad. Not every conversation has to be like, tell me your deepest, darkest stuff, and then I'll help you. 
That does not have to be every conversation. That would be weird if it was, wouldn't it? Like every conversation would last like two hours, and then you have to like set up more sessions. <laughs> it's perfectly okay to say, how are you? Well, you know what? Things are okay. I'm kind of struggling with some health stuff. Hey, can I pray for you? Yes. Amen. Going to get some coffee. It could be that. So ask yourself, and I ask myself, what am I doing today? When I get up tomorrow morning, what am I going to do today to help someone's joy? And, and, and just pray about it. Lord, if you want to bring someone my way, whether it's a raging heathen or a saved individual, who do you want to bring my way that I can just help them have joy today? I, can, I don't have to tell them what to do. I can ask them questions about why they do what they do. I don't have to dominate them and insist on something that I have a belief of what you know, movie they should watch or whatever. I, you know, the last service, I just used the example of, uh, you know, have, you, have you seen Jesus Revolution yet? No. Do you even love Jesus? I mean, do you, are you even a Christian? Are you even, are you even in a Calvary chapel and you haven't watched Jesus Revolution yet? I'll go see it if it comes local. This is one of those things where, like, People cannot see Jesus' revolution and still be Christians. <laughs> still go to Calvary. Still love the Lord. They can do it. It's, it's possible. I've seen like at least one person that did it. But you know what I'm saying? Like we get these, we get these bees in our bonnets where we're like, well, you got to see that movie or you definitely better not see that movie or you, whatever. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to help people with joy and to assist them to find Jesus. That's our, that's our whole goal in all this. <clears throat> Last verse, verse two, he says, chapter two, verse two, he says, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who would have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. So he has this little section here and it's just fascinating because we don't want to do things out of personal gain. But he makes this point. He says, you know what? If I had made an, a, a second visit, if I had, the way I look at it, if I had visited you from, on my way back from Macedonia, I would have just grieved you. I would have just grieved you. So instead, he says, if I grieved you, then who would bring me joy? Who would I have companionship with? Who would I have relationship with? It is a wise person that does not browbeat people with issues. That's a wise person. You consult the Lord. You lean on the Holy Spirit. If it's a moral issue that, you, that the Bible, like in 1 Corinthians 5, says, I can't eat with you. I can't have fellowship with you because of what you're rebelling in. Then that's one thing. But if it's just different opinions about things, man, we don't want to grieve the people that could bring us joy. Right? We want to be helpers and, and, and blessers. We want to know, we want to be good friends and be able to sweep away chaff from, from you know, the, the good from the bad when people speak to us and be helpful for that. So I just encourage you, you know what? If you don't know the Lord Jesus, he's got love for you, unconditional love for you and unconditional forgiveness through what he did at Calvary. And you can receive that today. And we'd like to invite you to receive Christ as your Savior today. Or if you do know Jesus and you're just at a place in your life, you're like, oh, I don't know how to minister. I don't know what to do. There's opportunity. Pray, Lord, what could I do? If, you're, if, if this is your home church, you can just pray, Lord, what could I do at Ocean Beach Christian Fellowship to be a helper of people's joy? There's a myriad of things. And it's not just all ministry positions or something. 
you have something to contribute here. You, you're, you're built that way. You're gifted that way by God. And if you're visiting, then your home church or find a church where you can be part of helpers, be part and help people's joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great kindness to us and your great mercy. Lord, we thank you for these examples of the faith that we have, what you did in Paul, what you've done in all these guys, Timothy, Silas, all these different people that uh, just said yes to you. Lord, we want to be those people. We want to say yes to you. Uh, we're, we know, uh, or I know, too often saying no and its consequences, it's, it's fruit. And so we say yes to you, Lord. We want to invite a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to invite ministry opportunities. Lord, we want to invite uh, the ability, or we have the ability, but the invitation and the opportunity to die to ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow after you. Lord, may we be those that love everyone, literally. May we be those that, uh, instead of lording, we're helping. Instead of trying to change behavior, we're investing. I pray we'd never give up on each other. Well, Lord, we'd continue to invest and uh, bless each other. Thanks for your great kindness to us and your great patience. May we extend that to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.